1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And as it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I think this lectern is short enough for Pastor Liambo from the Chinese ministry. Let me lift it up a little bit. That's better. Friends, it's uh, good to be here. And... um, you know, I brought my favourite cross next to me here. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? It's, uh, it's not very pretty. Uh, yet often we have pretty crosses all over our bodies. You know, what would you think if a woman came to work wearing earrings stamped with an image of the mushroom clouds of the atomic bomb dropped over Hiroshima that killed millions? You'd think it's strange or even grotesque. What would you think of a church building adorned with a fresco of all the mass graves of Auschwitz. You walked in today and it was covered, the walls were covered in dead bodies. Grotesque, you would think. Let me tell you, it was the same sort of shocked horror was associated with the cross and crucifixion in the first century. Apart from the emperor's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be put to death by this means. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves for aliens, foreigners, and barbarians. It was grotesque. Someone is hanging up on a cross under judgment, beaten black and blue, blood everywhere, skin ripped off their body. It was a symbol 
of judgment. It was wretched torture. It pictured images of evil and corruption and abysmal rejection. The cross had that image in that first century. Now, for us today, as I mentioned, you know, we have crosses over buildings. We have one on top of this building, and uh, they're on letterheads. They grace our bishops, they shine our lapels, dangle from our ears, and no one is scandalized. No one is offended by a cross. But in the first century, they were offended by the cross. It was a scandal. That's why he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. People look at the cross and think, you guys are crazy, this is evil. How can you talk about a cross? How can you talk about a God who brings good out of a cross? Are you deranged, you Christians? Have you lost the plot? To those who are perishing, it's foolishness, it's stupidity. You want nothing to do with it. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And friends, we need to somehow cross or bridge the cultural distance and start to feel again the awful picture associated with the cross. When people were hanging up on a hill, cross after cross after cross after cross, placed there by the Roman authorities, killed because they were wrong, killed because they were evil, they were the worst of society. And no one wanted to talk about that, it wasn't fun just like no one wants to talk about Hiroshima. No one wants to talk about the death, the graves of Auschwitz. See, the cross divides, it tells us in verses 18 to 25, and uh, we learned from uh, Matt as he preached uh, two weeks ago that the Corinthians were divided within themselves. One said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And Matt looked at the fact that the Corinthians were divided. They, they were, they were tend, tempted to uh, be attracted to the people who were good speakers, who uh, created a, a following in a crowd. And many of them were fascinated by the rhetoric of learned scholars of the day. Rhetoric speaks about how they presented their message, how well-spoken they were. And uh, it was, you had to be, I mean, you could become quite famous by being a great speaker. And they were more impressed sometimes with form, how the message was presented, rather than the content and the truth of the message. It's like that today. Someone speaks well, and they, they capture your attention. Maybe a story, maybe an illustration, or maybe the way they use their words, and you hold on to every word. And people say, well, I want to follow him. Well, I want to follow her. Can you? When they speak, man, I can't stop listening. But it was the content that mattered. They loved words of human wisdom or the wisdom of words, the way someone used their words. And there were great schools of the day who went around speaking like this and gathering great following. And sadly, the Corinthians were being like the people of their day. But Paul's more interested in the content of the message, the gospel that people called foolish. But what we notice is that this gospel divides people into two distinct groups, verses 18 to 21. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The dividing line is the message of the cross. You believe it and you're saved, you reject it and you're lost. You believe it and see it as beautiful, reject it and you see it as foolishness and you find death. And God says one of his stated purposes through the cross was to destroy the wisdom of the wise 
and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And Paul is saying, do you think you're smart? Do you think you're intelligent? He writes to them. Do you think you can understand the world? Can you cope without God? Paul says, the cross will destroy such thinking. If you think you can make it, make sense of the world without God and without the cross, he says, you're deluded. One of the things we need to remember right at the beginning is that God made us to gravitate toward him, didn't he? God created us that we would submit to him, we would love him, he would love us, and we would obey him, we would recognize him as God. But human beings as rebels choose to be wise, or we think we're wise. We want to take or put ourselves on the throne of the world rather than letting God be the king. In terms of driving a car, instead of letting God drive our car and direct us how we ought to live, we like to take control. God, out of my way, it's my car, it's my life. I'll do what I like. I'm smart enough to run this world. You know what happens to that type of wisdom? It leads to hatred and war and domestic violence and greed and rape and bitterness and much more. It leads to self-righteousness, self-promotion, manufactured religions and domesticated gods. When we push God out of the picture and say, I will be the one in charge, it leads to death. I was thinking about self-centeredness and uh, have you ever been in one of those arguments with someone? You're trying to debate a, a theme and, um, and you didn't really win the argument, but you go away. You know, what do you do? Are you like me afterwards? You think, if only I had said that. And you replay the argument in your mind. If I said this, this, and this, I would have won the argument. And uh, let me ask you this question when you do that. When you rerun it in your head, do you ever lose? No one ever loses, right? You play the game, you, you work it out and think, yes, that would win. There's something about our self-centeredness that is so deep that we want to outsmart others and we want to outsmart God as well. But God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To some it is foolish, the others, they are being saved. You see, they receive the message of the cross as a good thing. Christ dies in our place. He takes our suffering. God punishes Jesus for us. His blood, the gruesomeness of the cross, uh, the offense of the cross becomes good news. See, friends, human wisdom and folly were unable to achieve what God has accomplished on the cross. God accomplishes forgiveness, reconciliation. And Paul wants it to be very clear the gospel is not simply good advice. It's not just good wisdom. It is life transforming. It is power. Then he says, where is the wise person? Is there a wise person who worked out God's plan of redemption through the cross? No. So where is this wise person? They didn't work it out. Where is the teacher of the law or the scribe? You know, the expert in the law, the one who had the Old Testament? Where's that guy? Where's that person who worked out God's great plan of salvation through the cross. Again, they don't exist. See, many churches today even don't like to preach a crucified Messiah. Let's leave that behind. We're finished with the cross. Jesus died, that's good. Let's talk about self-fulfillment. Let's talk about personal need. Come to God and he'll give you all you need. Come to God and you'll have a happy marriage. Come to God and you'll make a lot of money. Come to God and you'll be bright and it Articulate. Come to God and you'll be successful and whatever you do. Come to God and God's going to give you these things. Let's leave the cross aside 
You know, years ago when I was at Springwood, uh, after we were singing songs about the cross, as we've done tonight, and we'll do later on the way to communion, this guy wrote this long letter to us. He came to critique our church at Springwood Baptist, and he went, and uh, along the lines that I've, I've been visiting your church for a number of weeks now, this is an older retired minister, not a Baptist, obviously. And uh, he said, and I've noticed you sing a lot about the cross and about the death of Jesus. I think if you're going to grow as a church, you need to move beyond the cross and to find fulfillment in other things. Because we've all moved beyond the cross, he said. I didn't write back to him. We asked one of the other elders to write back to him and thank him for his advice. But no, we're going to stay centered on the cross of Jesus. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of the lost. He wants us to move on to something else. We don't move on to anything else. The cross is the center of, our go- of the message of the gospel. Then he says, where's the philosopher of this age? Where's the debater? Which wise debater worked out that God was going to save the world through his de- the death of his son on the cross? Again, no one. No one was smart enough. No one was wise enough. No one was brilliant enough to work out God's plan for salvation of the earth. It says God has outsmarted human wisdom. His folly is outsmarted. In 22 to 25, it says the Jews demand signs. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, the Jews would say, can you show us a miracle? And Jesus wouldn't show them a miracle. Because they only wanted to see signs, and they were trying to cast Jesus out. They wanted to condemn Jesus. They wanted to put him to death. They didn't believe in him. Jesus would form or commit signs or show signs and perform miracles, but not at their requests. But they wanted to see signs. And friends, I don't know about you, but uh, I have people who say to me something like this, I'll commit my life to God if he heals my child. Or I will become a Christian if God provides me with a new and better paying job. Or I will turn from my sin and read the Bible if my marriage gets sorted out to my satisfaction. Well, I will follow God if my parents get back together again. Well, I will acknowledge Jesus if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes any doubt. People today are still asking for miracles. They're saying to God, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust how you're working. Do this for me, then I'll believe in you. Do this for me, and I'll believe in you. Just like the Jews. And then the Greeks, they look for wisdom. We're pretty smart Greeks. We're after wisdom all the time, right? We're looking for wisdom. And for them, it's like a dead Messiah doesn't make sense, right? But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, the Jewish people know that anyone who dies hanging up on a cross or on a tree is under the curse of God. So Paul is saying Jesus, who hung up on a cross, and the Old Testament says they're under the curse of God, is somehow the Messiah. I said, how does that work? It can't be true. It's a scandal, they say. And it's foolishness foolishness to the Gentiles. A crucified Messiah. It's nonsense. Do you know, some people today, even in Christian churches, say this. When we talk about Jesus dying for us on a cross, they say, what type of malicious God punishes an innocent son on a cross? That's nonsense. We just believe in God's love, God's mercy. There's no transaction on the cross. There's no Jesus dying for us. God wouldn't punish his son. Clearly, they haven't read Isaiah 52 and 53. Clearly, they haven't read their New Testaments very well. Some have called it cosmic child abuse. 
And what we teach in this church, they will mock, they will insult. What type of God a father punishes his son? Yeah, sure. You Christians are nuts. And yet the son, Jesus says, I lay down my life for you. The father says, I send my son for you. And rather than seeing the beauty of the cross, where the love of God and the justice of God punishing sin comes powerfully in that cross, they simply see a terrible work of God punishing an innocent son. And they cannot see how God can work in that way. You see, they think they're wiser than God. And God's word doesn't make sense. See, Jesus was not only the promised Messiah, he was also the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 says. He was going to be the fulfillment of all the bloody sacrifices in the Old Testament. He would be the ultimate one who dies under God's curse all right, but to deal with our sin and bring us forgiveness. That's why he says the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Friends, I've been a pastor for about 30 years now and, uh, and what you do, just to let you in a secret, pastors get together, they go to conferences, how to run better churches, how to preach better, how to organize better, how to run small groups better, how to do pastoral care better, how to lead better, how to strategize better. Now, they are all good things. And we talk about the five M's here. We have home group leaders and structures. We have training. We have plans and strategies. And we have youth ministries with plans. We have kids' ministry. Sure, it's good to plan and strategize. But some churches depend on the plans and programs and vision statements uh, rather than the cross of Jesus and the power of the message. Some of the greatest work of God is happening around the world. You know, they don't have big strategies. They don't have five M's anywhere. They don't have membership, mission, maturity. They just preach the gospel. Right through India, you're going village after village after village. The message of the cross transforms lives and people gather in Jesus' name. We can learn from these other things, but remember, it's the message of the cross which is powerful. And then in verse 26 to 31, and this is a very humbling thing, he says, God saves the insignificant. The insignificant. He moves to the people who received the message in Corinth, and he says, not many of you were wise by human standards. That's a little bit insulting, don't you reckon? Not many of you are very smart by human standards. It's not writing to us. If he wrote to us, he'd say, a lot of you are really smart, right? Maybe not. But for the Corinthians, he's saying, not many of you were smart by human standards. Not many were influential. You know, you weren't members of parliament. Your name wasn't Mr. Coleman or Mr. Morrison. Or Mr. Albanese? Not many were of noble birth. Not many of those of you were like that, he says. Now, yes, there were converts that were wealthy and who were highly regarded in the world standards, for example, of noble birth. There was Crispus and Philemon and Paul. And today, many wise and influential people become Christians, don't they? I mean, our prime minister, our, our um, not retiring prime minister, what is it? Our former Prime Minister is a Christian and this morning he was in church and, and reading the Bible and praying and, uh, and so sometimes God elevates in our society today Christians to high positions in our nation. And he did it in the first century and did it today. In fact, unlike the Corinthians, Christian churches like ours, if you weren't aware, are smarter than the people in the community. 
Listen carefully to what I'm saying to you. People in the church, when you do the census, in our community here in the local area for census, 18% of people have a university degree. In this church, 47% have a university degree. What we're saying is that in many Protestant evangelical churches today, we are a highly educated, reasonably bright and articulate group of people, a bit not like the Corinthians. They are in a different kettle of fish. Now, God is still able to work and save us, despite the facts uh, we weren't as low class as some of these Corinthians. But the point is that being wise or influential or well-born cannot possibly be a criterion of being a Christian or of being spiritual. God can choose to save anyone, and in Corinth, he's chose to save most of the poor people and the non-influential people, which is a corrective to me because sometimes, you know, you ever hear about an actor becoming a Christian or a singer becoming a Christian or a sports person? And if we run a men's breakfast, who do we try to get to speak at those events? We try to get the hero, right? The one everyone's talking about. Anyone have their favorite Christian athletes? A few NBA players out there, and I won't mention any of them. And, uh, you know, they have Bible verses on their shoes, amongst other things. And, and when they become Christians, we sort of say, hey, so-and-so became a Christian. So-and-so became a Christian. Well, you know what he says here? He doesn't care about the influential people. And I think it's a correction to say, don't just think about these influential people, these prime ministers and these presidents or these athletes or these music stars who are famous. God can do more in an ordinary person in a local church than he can necessarily do with a Christian athlete. I am tempted to talk about the famous people to non-Christians because I think that will give me an opportunity to bring the gospel in, and sometimes it does. But I think sometimes I think... If you're a Christian doctor, a Christian lawyer, a Christian scientist, that is more important, but it's not. Paul says to the Corinthians, not many of you were of noble birth, not many of you were influential. God does a surprising work. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has a point. He said, I'm going to choose the foolish ones, the, things that, the people that aren't that important, to show the wise that they're not really that wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know, when I got saved as a 15-year-old, I was a nobody, Greek kid, immigrant kid. Parents didn't have any money. I, I did not come from noble birth. My father worked in a factory all his life. All he did was glaze cherries. He'd go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning and come home at 7 o'clock at night he had paid a pittance just to survive, to have enough money. Which is Greek kids, just went to school, not famous, not important, and then God saved me by the good news. And let me tell you, it doesn't matter who you are, what type of family you come from, God loves you and is willing to take you, to make you new, and then to use you for his glory. God chooses to save whoever he wants, and he often chooses the nobodies in the world. Therefore, no one can boast before him. I don't go to God and say, God, you know, you I should have been chosen by you because listen to how special I am. God, I was so bright. My family's so beautiful. My, uh, we're so famous. God, choose me. No, I'm a nobody. And once we are nobodies, and God in his mercy has chosen us to be his children. What we boast about, verse 30, 
It is because of him that you are in Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, and it's our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you see, some of the Corinthians wanted to boast in themselves. They wanted to boast in their credentials. They wanted to boast in how well they spoke. But you know, Paul says, no, boast in him. We give glory to God. We lift him up and tell him how wonderful he is. And this also impacts how Paul preaches. It's not only true, he says, I preach with divine power, but I don't play games in my preaching, he says. I don't preach to please and amuse. When I come to you, brothers, I do not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. He says, I didn't play the games of the other speakers. I didn't want to sound as good as that other guy. I didn't care about how I sounded. I want to get the message to you that Jesus died for you. And if you repent and believe in him, you'll be saved. Now, Paul is a good speaker, by the way. Uh, the importance of relevant communication here. He was a good communicator. He, he had persuasive arguments. He's written most of the New Testament. You read his arguments, you think, wow, he's a pretty bright guy. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He knew the Bible. He could argue. But what he was saying is, I'm not playing the games. I'm not artificially communicating a message in such a way to think, wow, what a great speaker Paul is. Because you know what Paul wants? He wants people to say, wow, what a great saviour you're preaching about. He doesn't want to be elevated. He doesn't want to play these games. Who's the best preacher? He preaches the cross. Verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ is central. He said, that's it. I'm preaching Christ. And do not fear weakness, he says, illness or sense of being overwhelmed. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. He said, I wasn't this super speaker. I came. I was nervous. I was praying. I didn't know how you would receive the message. But I came anyway. I preached anyway. You know, years ago, I was at a beach mission. Who's been on beach missions here? A few people, yeah. And, and ours, I was at Foster, and uh, it was uh, New Year's Eve. And every New Year's Eve, we ran a bush dance in the open air. And they said, Ange, um, can you preach at the bush dance? And let me tell you, there are hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I've got a 10-minute sermon. And they're dancing, and they're partying, and there is noise everywhere. And at a certain point, after the dance was finished, they then invited me to come up. Someone asked me earlier, Ange, they said, are you okay? I said, I'm okay, man, I'm just petrified. <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to remember my notes. I've got to stand up and try and gain the audience of a thousand people where they're all eating and drinking and partying, and it's New Year's Eve. But somehow, by the grace of God, I got up there and said a few things about God's love and God's mercy. Just trusted that God would take that word and make a difference. I remember when I was the uh, president of the Christian group at Sydney Teachers College, and I got to speak to all the new first-year students, straight out of high school, first-year teachers, Sydney Teachers College. There were th about a 1,000 people in the auditorium. I was given five minutes to speak. And uh, all the various people, I, I got to speak because I was the president of the Christian group on campus. And I was sitting there, I was petrified. But I had five minutes to speak to all these students. So I hung in there, I was probably nervous, I was probably sweating. And, um, and then they said, and now our next speaker is from the largest group at our teacher's college, largest student group on campus, the Christian Fellowship Group. I went, okay, sounds good. Okay, it's a good start. And I got up there and I, and I, and I shared the gospel. And I started with a story and I said something like, you know, if I, uh, imagine, that, for example, that... Um, 
I discovered in my life that I had developed cancer. And I knew it was a terrible situation. It was going to be fatal. I didn't have long to live. But then I did some research, and I happened to be a, a bright doctor. And in doing my research, over a number of months, I, I was able to discover the cure to cancer. And I said to them, and, I, and this is like 2,000 students, right? And I'm trying to get this out, so nervous. And I said, and imagine I cured myself. And then I didn't tell anyone else. And I went home, my life was fantastic. I didn't die, I, my life went on, and I had a family, etc. I said, how would you feel... If you had cancer, and I had to cure a cancer, and I never told you. I guess you'd be upset with me, right? I said. I said, we exist on campus at Sydney Teachers College because we believe we have found, through Jesus Christ, something even greater than a cure to cancer. We believe we've been able to find, through Jesus Christ, uh, and a, a way to have a relationship with the God of the universe through the death of Jesus on our behalf. And we believe this message is so significant that we can't keep it to ourselves. And we run our Christian group on campus, and you're invited to our public meetings or, and to conversations, so you too can discover this truth. And they sat down, relieved. Paul says, I may be nervous, and you, for you might be trying to share the gospel with a friend at school, or at university, or at work, and you think, oh, I can't say anything, I'm so nervous, I'm so fearful. It's okay to sweat, it's okay to be nervous, it's okay, but tell people the good news of Jesus. But don't manipulate, but rely on the Spirit's power. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So I'm not worried about the words I use or how impressive I am. The power of the Spirit of God to change lives, to convict people and see them transformed. You know, early at 2 o'clock today over here, there was a baptism. There's a, a woman, Sophie, probably in her 30s, maybe 40s, who was an alienated from God. Her, her mother had become a Christian and she came to, to faith in Jesus Christ. And today she stood up to say, because someone shared the good news with her, she got saved. The power of the gospel and was baptized. The cross was gruesome, was hated, was a symbol of being under God's curse. And our Savior went there to bring us salvation. Don't be ashamed of it. Keep proclaiming it. It may seem foolish, to the Greeks, a scandal to the Jews, foolishness to your Australian friends, but it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. God bless you.